Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, dictated as almost always the case, during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, today is October 19th, 2009. This is episode 299 of the Survival Podcast. That means that uh, tomorrow we're going to cross 300 episodes. A year and a half and 300 episodes later, and we're still doing this show together every day. And uh, still doing it in the car a lot, too, so that's been kind of fun. And I think it's what's made the show unique. So what are we going to talk about today before I knock out the housekeeping? Let me tell you, uh, we are going to talk about becoming a rifleman today. And uh, some of you may be waiting for my promised economic forecast, and I'm still doing some research on that and trying to make it exciting, even though it's a lot of boring facts and figures for you. Uh, so I decided to do this as an interim show, and I, I did this for a reason. This weekend, I started looking at what a lot of people were saying on various forums other than my own about my show. And one of the things I've seen is a lot of the gun forums say, man, this guy actually does seem like he knows what he's doing with a gun, but he doesn't talk about him enough. And I wish he would do some more gun stuff, so I decided I'll do some gun stuff today. But I decided I would do it uniquely. Um, the big reason I don't do a lot of gun stuff is I don't want to turn this show into, like, you know, the firearms review show. Today we're going to talk about the Springfield XD and its five different ways that it can be configured and uh, ammo choices and, you know, what it means to you. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, I like that content, I certainly could do it, but there are so many places you can get that. So this show's always been about preparedness. Now if you're going to be prepared, you should be able to defend yourself, and you should be able to harvest game from the forest, right? Those are two things you should be able to do. Being a good rifleman enables that, enables that. So... With that said, that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, though, let's lock out some housekeeping. i got a lot of stuff to tell you guys today. Number one, make sure you're taking care of our sponsors. Sponsor one of the day is the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle from Ready-Made Resources. Yes, the water bottle is our sponsor today because that's what Ready-Made Resources wanted to do. They wanted a second spot, and they wanted to do it so they could tell you about this bottle. And it's just a bottle, so what? Well, folks, this is a bottle with a filter in it that filters down to .015. Microns. What does that mean? That means it filters bacteria and viruses. That means you can take bacteria, water with bacteria in it, without boiling it, put it through this bottle and have safe water to drink. It's the only thing I know that will do this, especially in that type of a small compact package. So check out that product. You'll find it in the right-hand margin of our site. Uh, the other sponsor of the day today is Tactical Response Gear, James Yeager's operation. One of the best sources of tactical training you can get. We're going to talk about becoming a rifleman today, but if you want to learn how to be a tactical response shooter, check out James's training and check out his store, Tactical Response Gear, for some of the best equipment you can find. Uh, next, make sure you get involved with our forum. I'll leave it with that, but join our forum. Uh, last but not least, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you think this show's worth more than 20 cents an episode. If every time you sit down and listen to me talk to you for a half hour and 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, you say, well, I would have paid two dimes for that information, consider joining the Member Support Brigade for $50 a year, because that's exactly what it comes out to. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. A little bit more on that during the show, believe it or not. Uh, and that pretty much wraps up our basic housekeeping. But I do have some other things I want to let you
you guys know about. Number one, I want to remind you, uh, Ron Hood was on the show a week ago now, and uh, he gave a discount to any Survival Podcast listener of 10% on any of the videos that he sells in his store. Uh, you can get that discount by using offer uh, code Jack Spirico. There will be a link in today's show notes. If you want any of his DVDs, especially for maybe you're going to give them away for Christmas or something, take the 10% while you can get it, folks. It's going to end Friday. Um, next, I also wanted to let you know, if you're not on the email list, you didn't get this over the weekend, but Eric Shelton published uh, his most recent version of Handgun Podcast, where I appeared as a guest. So if you want to check out that show, we talked about bug out bags. It came out really good. I really enjoyed doing the show with Eric. And unfortunately, um, I didn't know he had published it Friday morning. Had I known that, I could have made that, you know, kind of my filler for Missing Friday. So apologize to you guys for Missing Friday. And uh, with that, we, we've wrapped up that. Now, i got one more thing I wanted to let you guys know about. I thought you'd find this interesting. You know how big I am on growing food and having your own garden and, you know, encouraging, you know, maybe a couple thousand people across America to start putting in micro farms and following the Nervaeus' example and things like that. So today I got my, you know, daily update from LouisRockwell.com. There's an article on there with a video from Jim Rogers, the uh, the famous uh, investor uh, that uh, partnered with George Soros to make billions of dollars in the 70s, just billions of dollars in the 70s, when everybody was losing money. And uh, if you don't like George Soros, that's fine. Jim Rogers is not George Soros. Their politics are immensely different from each other. But I would pay attention to what either of these men say about money, because billionaires tend to know a little bit about money. Well, in this interview, one of the things that Jim Rogers said is if you're going to school right now, to college, you're better off with an agricultural degree than a technical degree or a business degree. Because farming is going to be one of the best professions to be involved in going forward into the future. The guy said, should we buy agricultural land? He said, if you know anything about farming. If you don't know anything about farming, you're going to be a lousy farmer and you're, you're going to go broke. But if you know how to farm and you know how to make money with a farm, yes. So I thought I'd share that with you as a little aside. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Check out this video with Jim. Uh, he's kind of a weird guy, but uh, he does know what he's talking about. And his look to the future is one that can help you turn what I think is term into maybe some opportunity by fine-tuning it into what you really want. So today we're going to talk about becoming a rifleman. So I thought the first thing we should do is say, well, what the hell is a rifleman? What makes you a rifleman? And this definition I'm going to give you is nobody's but my own. And maybe it is somebody else's definition. I don't know, but it's how I define a rifleman uh, as it pertains to us as a civilian living and working and, and doing our daily thing in America. Before I give you my definition, though, let's think about how different people would give us a different definition. Ask a Marine uh, major or lieutenant or general, Marine, you know, sir, what is a rifleman? His answer will be two words, every Marine. In other words, when you go join the Marines, you could be a typist. You're going to master your weapon, and you're going to be a rifleman in the definition that the Marine Corps has for being a rifleman. Go ask an Army commander. And they'll tell you that a rifleman is the guy that makes up the majority of an infantry platoon. That there's riflemen, there's machine gunners, what have you. That doesn't mean that every army soldier is trained to use a rifle, but there's a different way that they look at the, at the, at the question. Right? So my riflemen are my primary element of my infantry platoon, my ground infantry platoon. And they're supported by maybe a mortar platoon and what have you. Marine general, every marine is a the cook. Is a, I can give him a rifle and put him on a line. All right. So 
in the military world, even to, you know, there's a lot of similarities in the warfare methodology between the Army and the Marine Corps. Now, two Marines, or a Marine and an Army guy will fight day long about that. But when you look at how they're used, how they're deployed, it's actually quite similar. And even there, you're going to have a differential opinion. So I wanted to point that out just to kind of make you think, if you don't agree with my definition, that's okay, but give it a shot for the sake of this show, right? So my definition of a rifleman is an individual, male or female, could be a rifle woman if you want to call it that, but just call it a rifleman for simplicity's sake here, who owns and shoots one or a small collection, a small collection of purpose-built rifles with which they are intimately familiar of all aspects of that rifle, how to care for it, how to load it, how to shoot it, what goes in one end, what comes out the other, the way that the bullet flies, the way that the bullet performs on the other end, they know the gun. A a master rifleman looking at a shot that's long, and the bullet's going to drop quite a bit in its flight, can actually see in his head, almost like you're standing there with a computer and you're drawing a line, a line in his mind of the trajectory of the round. He knows exactly how that round needs to fly to land wherever it needs to land, even out to great distances, out to the limits, the practical limitations of the of the round that he's shooting. That's a rifleman to me. So notice what I'm talking about. It's not just how to shoot the rifle itself, how to care for, maintain, take care of, repair. He knows the weapon intimately. When he picks it up, it has a familiar feel to him. If you did something to his weapon that changed the balance of weight or changed any dimension on the stock, when he picked it up, he would know something is wrong. He knows that weapon. He knows it inside and out. And when I say a small collection, I'm not talking about a guy that has 15 rifles in 15 different rounds. I'm talking about a guy that maybe says, okay, to be practical, I've got a 22, I've got a 22 center fire, I've got a medium bore and a large bore. That'd be about maximum. Because you don't even need all that. But, again, very, very intimate knowledge of the weapon. Now, what I want to do today is help you get that mentality and help you, even if you already consider yourself that person, become more of that. So, obviously, in an audio show, I can't sit here and, and tell you 20 different drills to perform to become better with your rifle. Or, you know, start explaining very detailed uh, outlines of the rifle's profile and where the comb and the stock and the breech and all that stuff is. Right? It would be probably pretty boring if I did. So, what I want to do is give you a little bit of history on the rifle how we got them in the first place, how they evolved, and I want to tell you some of the science behind the weapon itself. And by taking the science and adding practical knowledge to it, it'll accelerate your rifle, your rifleman development. At least hopefully it will. So let's start out with how do we end up with a rifle in the first place? You know, how, how did the rifle come to be? Well, the first modern guns... And we're talking about flintlock, flint, flintlock muskets here, folks. Well, I, I guess my timing's off. I'm taking a day off or something. We're talking about flintlock muskets. And there was a thing called the matchlock before that. And there were some other earlier guns. But what really transformed the battlefield and made the long arm, the rifle, it's not really the rifle, the gun, part of modern warfare was the musket. Now, what made the musket different than the rifle is it was a smooth bore. And the only thing it fired was a round ball. 
And that round ball, basically, you could almost drop it down the, the, the barrel. It, it, it was barely, barely a tight fit that that round ball had. And what this allowed people to do in a field, a battlefield, was load weapons really, really fast for the time. Because you got to remember that, you know, what were people fighting with up till then? Swords and bows and arrows. And you can get a lot of arrows off in a minute. So you had to have a reasonable rate of fire. So allowing people to just basically drop some powder and shove that ball down, cock, prime the pan, and fire, flintlock, boom, you could get off a reasonable rate of fire. And you had more distance and more lethality than you did with the bow. And by taking thousands and thousands of men and lining them up and firing in waves so there would be a front line and it would fire and it would kneel down and begin to reload and then your back line would fire and then it would kneel down and begin to reload. Maybe your third line would fire. By that time, your front line stands up, fires, and that process repeats itself. You could keep a sustained volley up. The problem was the accuracy sucked and the range sucked because there's nothing that sucks worse to have flying through the air that's ever been shot out of a gun than a round ball. It is the worst performing projectile of all time. Maybe you start to understand why shotguns have a very limited range, even with relatively large shot size, because you're hurling round balls through the air. And they shed velocity very quickly. They penetrate very poorly. We'll talk about penetration a little bit here in a second. But basically, the round ball is a terrible object to shoot at people. So one day, somebody decided, hey, you know what? When you throw something, if it spins, it's more stable. So when we shoot an arrow, we have the fletching at an angle so that when we shoot it, the arrow spins. And the arrow is much more stable in flight than if it didn't have the fletching on it. So maybe if we impart spin to the round, we'll get more accuracy. And they machined what are called grooves and lands into the rifle. And if you open the breech end of a rifle, hold it up to the light, and look through the barrel of a rifle, making sure it's not loaded so you don't shoot yourself in the face, and you look in there and you see those pretty little curls, those twists, the raised part of that is called a land. And the recessed part is called a groove. The groove is actually the caliber. So if you look into a 30 caliber barrel, and you look at the distance from the from the groove to the groove, you're looking at 30 caliber. That land is actually making the gun smaller. So it's squeezing the round that passes through. So the first rifles were still flintlocks, and eventually percussion cap weapons, where you put powder in the end, and then you jam the round and patch down in. So it was a much tighter fit. So this slowed down the rate of fire. So even though these rifles were far more accurate than their previous muskets, they were a very slow implement to load and use in the battlefield. And speed was more important because we didn't fight wars the same way we do today, back then. They got armies up, lined up against each other, just kept shooting at each other until one killed more than the other. Because of that, speed was life. So the first rifles were employed in the hands of sharpshooters. So they would take a sharpshooter, and this is the advent of the modern rifleman. And it takes a, a platoon of sharpshooters and put them on the peripheral edges of the battlefield, and they would provide supporting fire, but they wouldn't get down there in the fray. Because if they did, they'd end up dead. Because you couldn't rely on them to hold the line because they couldn't reload fast enough to do it. And the accuracy meant nothing if you weren't firing. 
So that's where the first rifles came from. Now this became worse because even though it was hard to ram that patched uh, bullet down that ma- you know mini ball or maxi ball down the, the barrel, after you fired a few times and you built up this this black powder residue, it, it got harder and harder to load the rifle. So there were all these problems inherent to, to, to you know front stuff for rifles, we'll call them. Well, eventually, someone said, hey, you know what? If it's hard to shove the round down the tube, maybe we should be shoving the tube up the barrel. And if we loaded the rifle from the back side or the breech, maybe we wouldn't have this problem. We could get faster rates of fire. Enter the modern breech loader. Now, the first breech loaders were still basically kind of like a muzzle loader. Very quickly, they went to putting your powder charge into a little uh, piece of paper, kind of wadded up like it looked like a little cigarette, right, or a little cigar nub. So you shoved your bullet in, you shoved your powder in behind it, you closed up the breech, put a cap on, pulled the hammer back, boom. All of a sudden, the breech loader is faster than the musket. And armies start moving to the breech loader rifle. Still firing black powder, by the way, though, which is lower pressure, a lot more dirty, sulfur, all kinds, you know, big cloud of smoke coming out the end. Well, eventually somebody figured out how to make a modern metallic cartridge. We'll just skip ahead in history here 20 years. And they came up with a modern metallic cartridge, smokeless powder, a center fire primer, and a good quality bullet. And that's today when you go to the sporting goods store and you go buy a box of 3030 or 3006 or 308 or 223 or 260 or whatever. 7 millimeter, doesn't matter what it is. When you go buy that round today, that is a short version of how it came to be and why it came to be. Now, that's important, and it all really hinges around two things, rate of fire and accuracy. Let's start out with accuracy first, because it's what drove the quest. Rate of fire actually was the thing that had to be satisfied, but the thing that even made military commanders, and hunters for that matter, say, yeah, let's go forward with this whole evolution thing, was would you like to be able to consistently hit your target at 200 yards? Well, yes, I would. And a lot of people didn't believe it could be done. And it was the rifle that took that. So let's go to accuracy and say, what is the definition of accuracy? Now, just like the definition of a rifleman, the definition of accuracy is going to change based on who you ask. Hand a seven-year-old kid a Daisy Red Ryder BB gun, set up some tin cans for him, I don't know, about 15 yards away, and the day he could start knocking those cans down at 15 yards with his Daisy Red Rider, he's become accurate in his mind. And you know what? Good for him. He's pretty accurate. Ask a person like uh, a, a skeet shooter and being able to knock down. Now, we're not using a rifle here, but just kind of I want to get you thinking about definitions of accuracy. Being able to consistently knock down 25 targets is accurate. Ask a person that shoots metallic silhouette. Being able to knock down those metallic silhouettes out at 500 meters consistently with his rifle is accuracy. Ask a World Cup shooter that shoots a 1,000-yard competitions and being able to shoot a group about the size of a human hand at a 1,000 yards, that's accuracy. Ask the Olympian who competes 
with an air rifle, and they'll tell you accuracy is not just being able to make one hole on your target, but to be able to make one hole that's almost the same size as a single projectile using five projectiles. So I'll shoot five pellets at that target, and I'll make a hole that one pellet almost fits perfectly into. That's their definition of accuracy. You ask a deer hunter what his definition of accuracy is. Every time I see a deer, I pull the trigger one time, and I have a heart-lung shot, and that deer goes to the ground. So accuracy has as many definitions as there are different types of people in the world. For me as a rifleman, my definition of accuracy is rather simple. Being able to consistently hit whatever target is that you have to consistently hit. Now, that sounds crazy. It sounds like doublespeak, but it's not. Because it satisfies all the people we just talked about. So if you are a soldier, then at battlefield distances, you need to be able to consistently hit the target they have you shoot at the range, which is a human silhouette from the top of the head to the waist. That's what you have to be able to consistently hit. And that's the ranges that you have to be able to consistently hit it at. If you are a squirrel hunter, the near target is a head the size of a walnut with your 22 out to 100 yards in woods. You have to be able to consistently hit that. Both riflemen are accurate. So when it comes to defining accuracy, you can put up pretty pictures of targets all day long with sub-minute of angle groups. But what I want to know is what do you actually shoot at? Because very few of us can survive by either defending ourselves from or consuming paper targets. We're going to survive by defending ourselves from either animals that threaten us or humans that threaten us. And we're going to survive by consistently shooting animals that are edible. As far as food goes. Alright? So that's the situation that we need to be accurate for. Now, There's nothing wrong with becoming more accurate than necessary. I spend a lot of time shooting my rifle. I intimately know my rifle. I consider myself a true rifleman. And I can shoot those pretty paper targets with pretty little patterns on them. But that's not the most important thing when it comes to accuracy. Let me give you a practical example, see if this helps you understand my point. Sometimes I'll go to this range I shoot at called Alpine Range, um, out toward Fort Worth from where I live, in the south side of Fort Worth and down in that area. I think it's actually Cannondale is where it's officially located. And um, we out there shooting, and I'll sit set up on one of the benches at 100 yards, and maybe it's a really windy day, and even though we're kind of in a surrounded area with uh, concrete walls and everything, uh, it's a pretty nice range. If it's windy enough, you get wind swooping through the range. And sometimes I'll see people that are upset about the wind. Damn it, how am I supposed to shoot in this wind? And I've talked to some of them, and I'd say, you know, well, is your rifle sighted in? Well, yeah, it's sighted in. said, then this is a great day for you to be shooting. I'm like, what? It's like, well, are you a target shooter or are you a hunter? Most of them are hunters, especially this time of year they're getting ready to go down south or west Texas or east Texas and hunt. Most of them say, I'm a hunter. Where do you hunt? Well, I hunt down by Kerrville. Oh, you were all the big arroyos and all and stuff like that, our big fast expanses. Probably hunting deer on a feeder. Yeah, yeah, I hunt deer on feeder. Okay. And how far away from the feeder is your blind? Oh, right out about 100, 150 yards. Does the wind blow there? Oh, yeah, it blows like crazy. Huh. Maybe. 
you should see the wind blowing here as an opportunity to better learn your weapon. But they're so concerned with making sure that they end up with this nice, tight group on the bullseye, or two inches above the bullseye, that they don't see the wind as the opportunity to teach them more about their weapon. But they should be worried about, well, how fast is this wind? What direction is it traveling? Since I know my weapon is sighted in to be at this point of aim at 100 yards, where is it landing now? What effect does that have? Can I put in my head what that would look like another 100 yards out, 200 yards out? It probably will double the effect, so it's going to be three times as far. What I mean by that is if wind pushes your bullet two inches, that's pretty much, let's say an inch left at 100 yards, and uh, you move out to 200 yards, it's probably going to push your bullet about three inches left. Now, it's not a constant, but it's a good rule of thumb. So people could be learning these things, but they see them as a problem because their definition of accuracy is wrong. Because my definition of accuracy would be, as long as the group's good, there's a good pattern there. If I'm shooting a little bit to the left and I've got a 20-mile-an-hour crosswind, that's beautiful. I can still hit that deer and put him down. Because I'm thinking about the actual target, not trying to brag to the guy next to me on the bench. And I think that we would do well to think that way a lot more. And I think that's why you might have been happier if you're a shooter and you've shot all your life. If when you were a kid and you had a place you could go and you set up cans or bottles and you just broke them at various distances and you weren't worried about how close the rounds were together, you probably enjoyed shooting more because you were more worried about hitting a target than patterning a weapon. That pattern is important. It helps us measure our improvement. It helps us get a weapon sighted in properly in the first place. But it has a limited usefulness in the hands of the true rifleman whose job is to know his weapon well. You know, setting skeet up on a bank and shooting skeet at 100 yards offhand will teach you more about yourself and your rifle than making pretty paper holes over and over again. So, Along with accuracy, though, and trying to shoot those tight groups, there's two things that come in and hamper that. And there's two things I want you to know about, because very few people that are even regular shooters are really aware of these two things and how they affect the flight of the bullet. The first one is called oscillation. And I have a video on this, so I'm going to do this part briefly. You can go watch the video on YouTube. I'll put a link today that explains this in more in depth. But basically, oscillation is, you know that rifling twist in your rifle? Well, when you shoot a bullet through there, you know, with 60,000 pounds of pressure or 50,000 pounds of pressure, and it drives that bullet through there and it spins as it goes down the barrel, that barrel doesn't stay still. It moves. It moves an awful lot. It actually twists and spins in the same direction as the bullet is spinning as it goes down through there. It has an effect. We see the steel is rigid, but it does move. Now, it's imperceivable to the human eye, but it happens, and that's oscillation. Now, what happens with oscillation is, because the barrel moves, it has an effect on the way the bullet flies. As long as it oscillates the same way every time, the bullet will fly the exact same way every time. It's when something changes the oscillation from one shot to the next that it has an impact on the accuracy of the round. This is why people do what's called floating the barrel, which is where you take some of the stock off so that the barrel, you can take a dollar bill and slide it all the way up and down along the stock, and the, the, the barrel never makes contact with the forearm of the stock. Now, that's not because of oscillation. That's because of something called harmonics. 
And what happens is if that barrel is touching the stock, it's not a problem as long as it's touching it the same way. But I take it out and I shoot it today, and it's cold and dry. And I take it out tomorrow, and it's hot and moist, and I have a different level of pressure. I fire several rounds, and I go from a cold barrel that has one type of way that it's going to vibrate when it's pushed against the stock, and I fire 10 rounds to heat it up, and now I've changed the way that pressure is affecting my harmonics shot to shot to shot. So this is something you have to really concern yourself with, but if you ever look at really maximizing the accuracy of a rifle, and you're going to take that step of what's called floating the barrel, you should understand why. When you understand why, things become more real to you and more relevant to you. So I did want to cover that briefly. If you want a better explanation, please see my video on that. Uh, it's about five minutes long, and I think I explain it a lot better there because I have visual aids. Now what's more important and what you do have to understand in ballistics terminology is something called trajectory. Trajectory is the flight of the bullet. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have about the flight of a bullet or its trajectory is that a bullet rises on its flight path and then drops back down. It travels in an arc. It does not travel in an arc. The second ground leaves the barrel, it begins falling towards the earth under the effects of gravity. No bullet rises above the line of the bore. Line of sight's different. I'll talk about that in a second. But what I'm saying is, even if you angle your rifle at 45 degrees into the air, if you took a laser beam and put a laser beam through the air, and then you could see exactly where that line of sight was pointing, where that line of bore was pointing, and then you fired a bullet along that bore line, and you filmed with a super you know, high-speed film where you can slow it down and actually see the bullet traveling through the air, that bullet will never go above that laser beam. And at some point, it will begin to drop away from that laser beam and come down. Now, with that being the case, people will say, well, then how come if I sight my rifle in in a way where it's dead on at 100 yards, it might be an inch high at 150 yards and dead on at 200 yards, depending on whatever round you're firing. That's because you're actually, your, your bore line is actually shooting slightly up. Your line of sight is straight. So your bore line is crossing your line of sight. So the bullet comes above the sight line, spends some time above there, and comes back down. So there's an arc of flight. But it's based off the bore line, not off of some myth, mythical concept of a bullet ever actually rising above the bore line. It never happens. It's important to understand because when you're sighting a weapon in and you're looking at things on a ballistics table where it says, well, if you're two inches high at uh, 100 yards, you'll be dead on a 200 with this round. And you're looking at the fact that you might actually be three inches high at 25 yards, you're wondering what the hell's going on, and you get this illusion in your mind that this round comes up. Well, you're not always going to use ballistic tables. You're going to start playing with things and massaging things, determining where you want to zero your weapon at whatever distance based on where you shoot most often, and understanding that that never happens will help you as you put more practical applications behind it. So I wanted to make sure I talked about that today. There's a couple other things that people need to think about with trajectory. If you want want to shoot really long distances. This is the one that people don't get. It's not just the trajectory. It's not just the wind drift. It's the time in flight. So let's say that there's a deer at 800 yards. 
and I'm sitting here with a 300 Weatherby Magnum, great custom-built rifle, and I can hit that deer's target's you know, area, his heart-lung area, at 800 yards. There's enough retained energy when the bullet gets there. It's going to kill the deer, and I take the shot. And I'm dead on when I take the shot. Am I guaranteed to kill? Let me say this again. The deer's 800 yards away. There is no wind. I'm not going to have wind drift. I'm capable of making the shot. I do everything right. The weapon is capable. The bullet is on the way. It is headed directly for the heart, lungs on the deer. Am I guaranteed to kill? Assuming that if the bullet hits its target, it's going to give me a kill. It's not going to be some weird thing where it hits a bone and turns or something like that. It's going to, The terminal performance will be fine. Am I guaranteed to kill? The answer is absolutely not. Say that again. The answer is absolutely, I am not guaranteed to kill. The only way I'm guaranteed to kill is if that deer doesn't move. Because even though I have the shot perfect at the time that I pull the trigger, there's a time that it takes that bullet to get from my bore to that deer, and at that distance, we're talking maybe two seconds. How far can a deer move in two seconds? So it's also important to understand that when you're taking long-distance shots with a rifle, beyond the range of what most people should be doing, by the way, that there is a time factor, a time-of-flight factor, that comes in along with trajectory. Because the higher the trajectory arc, the longer the distance is going to take to be traveled. In other words, if I have a bullet that's capable of going in a straight line there, it's going to be a very fast time-of-flight. If I have a huge, high-arcing rainbow, i.e., I can shoot a 44 Magnum and consistently hit a target at 500 meters. If I spend enough time playing with it, get the round right, learn it, it can be done. But it's going to be like, if you're shooting at a gong, it's going to be like, boom. Clank. Because it's a huge arcing rainbow. Where 500 meters with something like a uh, 30.06 is more of a boom. Clank. Right? We put in a 300 Winchester Magnum Low, uh, low weight, high velocity round, boom, clank. Right? So you get a less flight time. So that has an impact. Right? Now, does this really apply to you going out and starting to become better intimately uh, in touch with your rifle and its capabilities? Only as you begin to push it. And I'm going to tell you a way to push these things without having a 1,000 meter range. All you need is a 200 meter range and a 22 rifle. A 22 rifle is like a simulator for a center fire. You take it out to 200 yards, it's like shooting about seven, 800 yards with a center fire. It really is. Because everything becomes magnified once you go past about 150 yards. That bullet is just slamming toward the earth. And if you miss your distance estimate by as little as 10 yards, you miss your shot. Because that trajectory now is very downward. And that's the last part of this before I move on from trajectory that I want you to understand. As a bullet is coming down, in its trajectory and it's becoming steeper and it's drop your range estimation becomes more critical because let's face it if I say you're at 150 yards and I'm shooting at a deer and it's actually 180 yards and it's 30 yards of distance the drop of that bullet at that distance from a modern centerfire rifle is less than an inch less than a half of an inch in most cases a lot of times less than a quarter it doesn't really affect anything because the drop right now is a very flat slow drop 
But if we get way out there at, let's say, 600 meters, and I'd say it's 600 meters and it's actually 620 meters. Now, that 20 meters is extremely important because that steep drop, I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss because I was wrong by 20 meters in my range estimation. That's what trajectory is really all about. Now, there's two other things I have to talk about that go along with trajectory. The first one is called a ballistic coefficient. Now, unless you're really a ballistics guy, you probably have heard of ballistics coefficient and thought, I don't really care. This is big words and too complicated. And again, I'm Jack's definition of accuracy. If I can hit the target, I'm good. Ballistic coefficient is not complicated. The most simple definition I can give you of a ballistic coefficient is the ability of an object to fly. The higher the ballistic coefficient, the better the object can fly. So that's it. So a lot of times people think, well, if I get a lighter round at a higher velocity, I'll be able to shoot further. And you can to a degree, but as you get further out in the ranges, that light round starts to lose its, 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 uh, its, its, its velocity faster. So it might be very accurate or very uh, level trajectory for a short distance. But when you get out at a longer distance and it begins to shed its velocity, it doesn't perform well as a heavier object. So the way you take away all of this factor, you don't even need to worry about the weight of a bullet, is the bullet with the highest ballistic coefficient traveling at the same muzzle velocity will have the greatest distance capability. And that's it. That's all you need to know. So when you're selecting a round for distance shooting, a lot of times instead of trying to force more velocity or going from a standard round to a magnum and getting 200 feet per second, if you could find a bullet with a higher ballistic coefficient, and assuming it will perform well for the task at hand, in other words, if a hunting bullet it's a high ballistic coefficient, but it's a good quality hunting slug, you'll be able to extend your range without changing your powder charge, without changing your velocity, and you'll get more effective long-distance kills. That's what ballistic coefficient is all about. The other one that people ignore, and I think it's a huge mistake to ignore, is called sectional density. Easiest definition I can give you of sectional density is the ability of an object to penetrate. The higher the sectional density, or SD, the greater the ability of the round to penetrate. So if I have a long, heavy bullet, it will have a high sectional density. If I have a short, light bullet, it will have a low sectional density. In other words, something like a... um, a very lightweight round, 9mm, is going to have a low sectional density. You'll say, well, they penetrate well. Well, they penetrate well because they don't expand and because they're shot at modest velocities that don't make them expand heavily, so they tend to penetrate well. But if you take something like a great big long 220 grain 30 caliber round in a 30.06 traveling relatively slow, I mean you're going to drop down into the 2300, 2200 foot range with a 220 grain bullet. It'll penetrate like insanity. It'll go right through a moose from ass to head because the sectional density is high. That sectional density is part of something that I call kind of the magic formula, which I'm going to kind of finish up with today. So i got one more thing to talk about before I get there. 
When you start talking about bullet weights and weights and grains, and you start looking at sectional density, ballistic coefficient, all these different things that impact how a bullet flies and how it performs at the end, and what's called its terminal performance. Terminal performance is what happens when the bullet hits its target. Does it expand? Is it a, is it a jacketed round that pulls through? Uh, does it explode? How does it act? When you look at all these things together, you go to the common debate, the debate that's been had for years and years and years, and it'll probably never be satisfied because both sides are right, their method works. And that argument is light and fast against heavy and slow. It was a great debate that ran on for years and years between Jack O'Connor and Elmer Keith. And Elmer Keith was a big, heavy, slow bullet guy. He wanted heavy bullets, moderate velocities, knock down the animal. Jack O'Connor was a big fan of fast and light. And Jack O'Connor's statement was, look, a animal with a hole in both lungs will only go as far as it can hold its breath. So however long that thing can hold its breath, it can run. That's fine. I'll find it. It's going to bleed out, and it's going to it's going to you know die because it can't get any oxygen anymore. So if my bullet punches a hole dead through there, that's you know I'm done worrying about it. Elmer Keith's thought was if I take this big, heavy, slow-moving slug, it's probably going through anyway, but it's going to dump its energy into the target much more efficiently than this fast round that's going to leave a lot of the energy still in the round as it flies out the other side and dumps more of its energy into the ground than into the animal. So they raged in this debate. And what I find is uh, very, very ironic is that one of Jack O'Connor's favorite rounds actually proves Elmer Keith's point for him, even though it didn't, and it wasn't a round that Elmer Keith was fond of, and that was the 7mm uh, Mauser, which Jack's wife used to take elk and other big game, much bigger than most people would assume the 7mm Mauser was made for. And it worked out well. I'll talk about that in a second. But on the slow versus slow heavy versus fast and light, is there ever going to be a, a you know, a definitive answer which one's better? The answer is no, because what are you shooting? Fast and light is better to shoot prairie dogs. You know, big and slow, probably better to shoot elephants with. And most of us don't spend most of our time shooting prairie dogs or elephants. So the truth lies somewhere in between. And that's what I mean when I talk about the magic formula. I wish I could claim credit for this magic formula. I can't. I wish I could claim uh, or give credit to the person that I heard it from, and I can't because I don't remember who the person was. I was reading an article, and it might have been online many years ago, about the 7mm 08. And this guy was a huge fan of the 7mm 08. To him, it was the one rifle that does it all in North America. You don't need anything bigger unless you're shooting grizzly bears. And anything other than that, you might as well get a 7mm 08. You might as well hand load. You might as well load, you know, heavy for caliber, 160 grain bullets, and load them at about 2,500 feet per second. And that's below the weapon's capability. And you'd say, why? Here was his answer. Here's why I define sectional density and ballistic coefficient. Those bullets have a high ballistic coefficient. That means they fly very, very well. Which means you get good trajectory out past 300 yards, and most people never need to shoot any further than that. And even if you do, the capability is still there. If you're good enough, going to a 300 Weatherby is not going to make you a better shot at 500 meters than a 7mm 08 if you know your weapon well. I thought he was right about that. 
then he got deeper into this, and he won me over. And he said, the other side of this is the sectional density. This round has a high sectional density, and it penetrates like crazy. And because it penetrates like crazy at a modest velocity, it drives through the animal and cuts a big hydroshock channel through the animal without exploding inside, without doing a massive amount of meat damage, but the entire bullet channel, the bullet kind of tears its way through rather than just punches or dumps. And it's a kind of a sweet spot. And I looked at his sectional density number, his velocity number, and I said, what is the most lethal round that paper ballistics say is not as lethal as in other words what round has proven itself for over a hundred years consistently at a point that's almost mythic in anybody that knows about it and that was the 6.5 by 55 millimeter Swedish Mauser round and that round has killed more moose than any other round on the planet moose Scandinavian moose are smaller than North American moose but they're a big animal we're talking way bigger than a horse it was a round that was created by its creator with it needed to be able to take horses out because at the time people still used horses in cavalry movements. This is an 1800s round. Late 1800s this thing was developed. So the cavalry would show up with, with lances still back then. And they wanted to make sure if I shot a horse out from underneath a rider, it dropped the horse. And you look at this, it's a 6.5 millimeter. It's a very small caliber. But it's a 140 grain bullet with an extremely high sectional density. In fact, a sectional density of around 2.9. Or 0.290. 0.29. And then I looked at his 7 millimeter 08. It was right in there. And both were in muzzle velocity ranges of 2,400 to 2,600 feet per second based on the load. And I said, let me go back and examine every round that I can think of that has that cult following, like the 7mm Mauser, like the 65 by 55mm Swede. The next thing that popped into my head almost instantly was the 35 Whalen. Uh, 35 Whalen's a necked up 3006. Uh, not real common, but people that own them won't shoot anything else. And guess what? I had a .29 range sectional density and a muzzle velocity with heavier bullets in the range of about 2,500 feet per second, right in the middle. I said, well, I read an awful lot about the 375 H&H Magnum. Very big round now, you know, very powerful round um, from, you know, people like Robert Rourke and Peter Capstick, and this thing was just mythical and its ability to take huge animals where people would say, well, you need a 458 or a 460, and they'd say, in the countries where it's legal, this 375 is a surgeon's tool. It takes the heart out of a cave buffalo and puts it down every time. As long as the shooter does his job, guess what? Sectional density, 0.29, muscle velocity, right at about 2,500 feet per second. 33806, uh, Wildcat version of the uh, the 3006, made by Elmer Keith, by the way. Guess what? Sectional density, 0.290, muzzle velocity, rate of 2,600 feet per second. I said, you know, I've always shot deer with a 3006 or a 308 in, with, with bullets in the 180 range, and most people drop the 150s for that. I don't get a lot of meat damage, and it was close. Right? It was a little bit higher velocity and a little bit lower sectional density. And then I looked at loading a 30.06 with 190 grain bullets. 
and uh, which are available from Hornady. And I did it, and I loaded them up to be rated about 2,500 feet per second. And everything I've ever shot with them has just, just been devastatingly killed. Very low recoil because we're dropping down the load a little bit off of max, you know, so it's not a max hot load. And you have this, this great performance. So I'm telling you that anything that you'll find that you can create that formula with, you're going to get a very similar result from, you know, 25 caliber all the way up to, to, to 40 caliber or higher. You'll find this to be the case. And there's round after round after round that will fill this, this, this niche. 7mm Mauser is another one. And this is really a, like a hybrid of the Elmer Keith school of thought and the Jack O'Connor school of thought. They still have a relatively higher velocity, right? I mean, we're not talking about subsonic stuff here. But I have a heavier bullet. In fact, Elmer Keith himself helped to create the 33806. They call it the OKH or something like that when it first came out. But that's what created the 33806 with that formula in mind. I don't think he had that formula in mind. He just knew big slug, moderate velocity, big hole, dead animal. So I think this is the sweet spot. And I don't think it plays well in gun magazines. And Americans buy faster, so they want to have a higher muzzle velocity or the same high muzzle velocity with a shorter action. So we have all these short action magnums and everything today. But I think if people stuck to these basic standard rounds and learned to shoot them well, they would improve their performance in the field, and they would definitely become a better rifleman. Last little bit now on thoughts of selecting a rifle. I'm not going to go through a bunch of different brands or anything, but I did want to talk briefly about uh, your different actions. And your four primary actions for a rifle are semi-automatic, uh, lever action, pump action, and bolt action. I think most people would do well to make their first center, center fire rifle a bolt action rifle. It's the uh, most inherently accurate among them. Uh, we're, we're, again, we're talking about field-level riflemanship here today, so if you want your AR, go get your AR. But when you really want to become a finely-tuned rifleman and you want to use your weapon to provide you know, home defense if you absolutely have to, but primarily to go out in the field and be able to feed yourself, that bolt action is going to do more for you. And if you look across our country and you surveyed 10 million hunters, the bolt action is probably going to be the one that more of them carry than anything else. Semi-autos are nice. I'm not talking about real tactical rifles here, but things like uh, the Remington 7400, uh, the Browning Bar, uh, they're really nice. What's nice about them is they have a very low recoil uh, compared to like a bolt action because they have that open breech and that action actually takes some of the recoil up. But if you stick to my little magic formula I just gave you, your recoil is going to be kind of insignificant anyway. Lever actions, they're cool. I like them. I have a Marlin 1895 in uh, uh, 44 Magnum. I love the gun. Uh, I've been asked my opinion of the lever action uh, 357 Marlin. There's one gun in my life that I ever saw used and didn't buy, and just to this day I think I should have bought that gun. And it was a 357 Magnum Marlin, one of the old ones without the crossbolt safety, the standard half-cock safety hammer and all. And uh found that in a hardware store in Pennsylvania. I was looking for a gun for my son for his first deer rifle. Didn't think a 357 was the way to go for that, so I didn't buy it. I should have bought it for myself. To this day, I wish I could go back and buy it. It was a great deal on that gun. So I love lever actions. They're not the most inherently accurate things in the world. They're not the most practical things in the world in the field. But 
in the hands of the right rifleman, they're just as deadly as anything else. And it's really more about what you're comfortable with. And then the pump. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of pump rifles. There's actually not that many of them out there. Uh, the Remington 760 Woodmaster was kind of the original one. And uh, they have, like I think they call it the 7600 now. That's probably about the best pump centerfire rifle that I know of. And it's a good gun. And pumps are okay. And I actually shot my first couple deer with a re- old Remington 760. And some of the, the best hunters in the Northeast love that gun. Uh, there's the, the Benoit's up in... Uh, in, in Maine, who are legendary deer hunters, legendary trackers in the Northwoods, and that's 180 grain round nose, 3006, Remington 760, every single one of them uh, carries that. And I mean, when I say legendary, I don't mean legendary like I know of. These guys have, there's books out by these guys about hunting northern whitetails. And uh, that's how well known they are, and that's what they shoot. So I think what we learn when we look at choices, though, of things like, well, you know, I know this guy, another guy, one of my uncles, uh, has an old Marlin 336 and 35 Remington. Carries it every deer season. Carries it every black bear season. Uh, he has fed himself with that thing for, God, I guess going back 30 years now, the same gun. Is there anybody that could make a case that that gun is not extremely lethal in his hands? No, and I think that's one of our big lessons here today. There's an old saying. It, it comes out of Africa, from what I know. Uh, I think I first heard of it in the works of Robert Rourke. I think Harry Selby is the, uh, the, the guy, the African hunter that originated it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but I, that's the first place I've ever heard it in literature. And it was, beware the man that carries only one gun. Because if you carry only one gun, you are so intimately familiar with it, you don't even have to think after a certain amount of time about what to do. You look, you feel, you sense, you point, you pull the trigger, and the round goes where you want it to go. That's really becoming a rifleman. So I know today's show was a little bit different. Folks, I was a little bit off in my timing today. I apologize for that. The traffic was absolutely crazy today, and I knew not to go off on an auto rant, because if I did, I was really going to go off like ballistic, and it wasn't going to be good for the show. So I apologize if any of the timing was off today. But I hope it's helped you understand more about rifles, shooting, ballistics, what all these terms mean, and how you can take that knowledge and just go out and apply it in the field. My challenge to you, take a twenty two out. Take it out past its, its effective range, 150, 200 yards. Start trying to hit coffee cans. Big old coffee can, 150 yards out with a 22. You'll be surprised how quickly you'll be able to do it. In fact, you'll be surprised how quickly you'll be able to take a coffee can, and actually after a while you'll be able to drop rounds into the coffee can from 150 yards. Believe it or not, it can be done. It's not even that spectacular. Once you learn the rifle, the conditions that you're in, have a guy with a set of binoculars telling you where you're at, but, but, but experiment with these things. These will make you a better shot with everything that you do. Let me put it to you this way. You know that Olympian that fires the air rifle that I talked about earlier? The person that stands with that you know, right hand or that left hand with the palm flat and the gun laying in there and this really expensive air rifle and they fire and they fire and they fire and they put five shots into one hole with an air rifle. If that person's never touched a thirty oh six in their life, do you really think for one second if I put a thirty oh six with a scope that was sighted in properly and handed it to them that they couldn't put a deer down at a hundred yards without even thinking about it? Of course they could. Because they've learned 
to understand the weapon itself. And they've learned proper procedure. And they've learned to breathe right. And they've learned to control their trigger squeeze and things like that. And there's a lot of things that you can do to improve that. One is called the dime washer exercise. And that's where you get into a position to shoot and you work with a partner. And you're dry firing. So you make sure your weapon's clear. You cock your weapon. You hold your weapon. You take aim. The person sets a dime or a washer on the barrel of your weapon. And you pull the trigger. And you try to do it without knocking the dime or the washer off. Again, this is simple once you learn how to do it. I can hold the rifle with one hand. Honest to God, I'll put it on video if you don't believe me. I can hold a rifle with one hand, have somebody balance a dime on there, and I can pull that trigger, holding it out like a pistol, and not drop that dime or washer off the barrel. But until you learn, it's a great drill to learn. There's some other drills. There's a whole series of videos for member support brigade members that teach you how to use dry fire exercises with a rifle. But nothing will ever beat going out in the field and actually firing rounds downrange. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of the 22 Because you can fire so many rounds for so little money. You don't have to go out to these massive ranges to experiment with drop and drift. You find a big dirt field uh, and 150 yards of shooting, you can learn a lot about ballistics in one day from a 22. So go out and do that. Make it a family uh, thing. Uh, learn from it. And just as you're shopping for your rifles, take some of like the, the pizzazz and the marketing spin and all these pictures of perfectly mushroomed bullets and throw them away. Understand that our forefathers, most of them went out with military-style rounds, 30 06s. 30-30 was a military round, folks, long before uh, it became a hunting round because that's what it was originally made for. And, and those two rounds alone have probably killed more game in North America than the rest of them all put together, the 3030 and the 3006. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. Think about the most important thing, and that is learning your weapon intimately, understanding it, learning how to take care of it, learning how to control it, and yes, learn some of these terms so that when somebody talks about them, you understand how it actually pertains to you, and more importantly, you understand where it does not pertain to you. And with that, I'll sign off today. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And you can holler it doesn't matter cause it all gets spent